Go ahead and grab a seat, make yourself comfortable. I've got some really good news for you. When I was driving in, I heard on the radio that Ric Flair is coming out of retirement for one more fight at the age of 73. Can you believe that? Has nothing to do with Jesus at all. I'm not even going to tie that into the sermon. I just thought for 20 minutes, could I whoop Ric Flair in a street fight? I mean, for a million bucks, could it happen? I don't think it could happen. I think he could still take me. Um, but hey, it's good to have you here. If we've not met, I'm one of the pastors at Legacy. I get to teach, and uh, I'm teaching a fun passage today in Acts 20. So if you have a Bible or a device, that's where we're going to be. And before we even get started, I just wanted to recognize a family that's here from out of town. I don't do this hardly ever, but the Koch family is here. They're sitting up there with my bride. That's Dan and Lori. I've known them for over a quarter of a century. I've started doing ministry on the college campus and knew Lori back in 1997-ish, somewhere around there, give or take a year. We're all older and we have kids now. Um, but we did ministry together at um, Long Beach State and at UCLA for a little bit. And then she's been mostly around Lawrence. And now they're in Nebraska doing great work there. So if you um, want to get around them and just thank them later for all of their hard work in the ministry, man, that'd be great. They've done a lot. They've, they're on sabbatical right now. They're just passing through to be with me and Paula for a little bit. But be sure to get around them and meet them and thank them for a lot of selfless years spent in the ministry. Um, hey, listen, I'm going to go out on a limb, just jumping off into this moment we have together, and I'm just going to guess that nobody in here is bloated when it comes to encouragement. No one's, no one's pushing away from the table of encouragement saying, I'm full, I'm over-encouraged, and I don't really need any more. I, I think we're all inwardly and pervasively discouraged for the most part, I think we're always asking ourselves questions of how we're doing in life, but pretty sure we're not doing great. Always maybe scanning our, our life and wondering how we're doing as a person, how we're growing, but pretty sure it's not great. I, I think one of the questions that usually sits in the back of everybody's mind is, do I have what it takes? Just for anything, for this job, for this marriage, for my life, do I just have what it takes in this thing called life? And without encouragement around us, all we have is this voice in our head telling us, nope, you probably don't have what it takes, very likely. You see, just like your lungs need a lot of oxygen, our soul needs courage to be placed into it, which is what encouragement is. Encouragement is just somebody locating courage in you, installing courage in you. And when someone encourages you, you feel it, don't you? You feel animated, kind of fortified. You feel energized. You feel like you could lean forward into life a little bit, and we can tell the difference between thoughtful encouragement and shallow cheerleading, can't we? Can't you just smell it a mile away when someone does a really good job of encouraging you versus when someone comes up and says something like, hey, man, you've got this. I don't even know what that means, but you've got it. Whatever it is, you've got it. Or these quotes we keep pulling off of Instagram, shoot for the moon, because even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. That sounds so bad now that I read it out loud. It's not even impressive. <laughs> or you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. <laughs> That's not helpful at all. Doesn't help at all. Keep calm and carry on. All of these are very you-centered, yielding glory to you as you succeed. 
And I'll have you in the middle. That's one of the things I see most common in how the world encourages itself or encourages each other. And I think that encouragement will get you through a spin class, for sure, will not get you through a crumbling marriage or a dying career. Won't do anything for that. There's nothing worse than being greeting carded whenever your soul needs oxygen, whenever you just need encouragement to make it through. So I think the big question I have for you today is, did you feel encouraged when you walked in? Or did you carry a level of heavy discouragement with you? I mean, are you done with encouragement or could you use some more? I could use some more. I'm sure you could too. Do you suspect you do not have what it takes? One of the questions we're going to carry with us and put on our dashboard through this passage, and it is a weird passage, is how important is it that we as growing disciples both receive quality encouragement and give quality encouragement? How important is it that we deliver good, gospel-formed, Jesus-shaped encouragement? So let's look at this passage. It's going to lift all the weight for us, and we're going to see Christ very clearly. This is in Acts 20, verse 1. And just to remind you, Paul is coming out of Ephesus where there was a little bit of an uproar, um, a little bit of a riot, to be honest with you. And it says this, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after, here's the key word, encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, and Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Okay, listen, it's easy to get lost in all the place names here and even the people names here, but just to make it very simple for us, Paul went to Greece, but he went to Greece through Macedonia and he did so so that he could kind of pit stop and encourage these churches that he had planted. I mean, he's, he's, we're talking about the Thessalonians and the Bereans and the Philippians. These are people that he knows, people that he would name by name, people that he loved. These are churches that he planted. He basically took the long way. There was a much faster way to get to these very same churches, but he went the long way. This would be like you going to Miami by way of Texas, which would make absolutely no sense unless you hated yourself and loved the highway. That's what it would take. But unless you wanted to see old friends in Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, if you had friends, it would make sense to go the long way, right? To encourage them. And if you were to maybe stop with some friends in Oklahoma on the way to Miami, your encouragement, the words coming out of your mouth would have more value. Why? Because it was costly. It took a lot for you to get there. You went out of your way. It cost more time. It cost more money. So even your very top-of-the-shelf encouragement is made even more valuable in that, and that's what we have here. Paul's going out of his way to see people, and he's encouraging them, and it holds great value. But why would they need encouragement? Because it's hard to come by, right? Same reason we need encouragement. Discouragement is not hard to come by. It's our default factory setting. We open up our eyes, our feet hit the floor, and we're discouraged. We quickly think, whether we say it out with our mouths or not, 
do I have what it takes to be a mom, to be a dad, to be an employee, to be an employer? Do I have what it takes? Man, it's easy to get discouraged. And they were discouraged. I want you to remember, Paul was run out of most of these places. It's not like Paul stopped a visit. It's not like he had a little conference session and thought, well, you know, I guess it's time to leave. My, my reservation's up at the Airbnb. I'm going to go ahead and just pack my stuff and make my way to the next city. No, he was pushed. He was chased from city to city. How do you think life was for those who stayed? Not everybody left. Just him. He left Christians building churches. I'm sure it was discouraging from time to time. So Paul eventually gets to Greece. He winters there for a few months. Incidentally, this is when he writes Romans. It's in this little block of time. And then eventually the uh, Jewish Greeks there start doing what, what we see often. They start plotting his death because, of course, they do because this happens everywhere he goes. So he heads back through Macedonia. He goes back just the way he came. To do what? To encourage the churches again. And he's carrying a team with him. All those names that we just read off. Did you notice they're all from different areas? What they're doing is is they're going to carry a monetary gift to the struggling church of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is just getting gut punched financially. So all of these churches in Greece and Macedonia are collecting an offering. You could read about it in 2 Corinthians. This is what it's talking about when you get to chapters 8, 9, and 10. So they're collecting this gift and they're bringing it as representatives from the different areas. It's really cool. Because I want you to remember, when we started this book of Acts, when we started our walk through the the book of Acts, the church was like Jewish, Jewish Christians over here and Samaritan Christians over there and Gentiles over here. They were partitioned and shoeboxed off. But now there's big solidarity as they come together. And that's the big sentiment that they're translating. We're all from different areas and we are all one church. So it's really cool what we're seeing right now. But the key word I want you to pick up is the one we've seen a few times and we'll see again before this little section of uh, passage is over, and that is the word encouragement. He encouraged them in person. Why not just send a letter? I mean, he's pretty good at letters. Have you read Romans, Philippians, 1 Timothy? He's good at writing letters. Why didn't he just write a letter? It's faster. I mean, he could just hand it off to somebody else and they, they can go run with it. You can stay there. Why not, why not send an email? Why not send a text? Why not send a text with no punctuation or grammar, just a bunch of words, right? Why not just send an emoji or something like that, which is basically digital grunting? Why didn't he just do that? It would have been easier, but it wouldn't have been encouraging. It wouldn't have been encouraging. It wouldn't have been costly. That's why. Number one principle I want you to catch in the way encouragement traffics in this passage is that good quality encouragement is inefficient. It's inefficient. It doesn't make sense. It's costly. When someone goes out of their way to bring heavy encouragement, it adds value. That's what we keep seeing. Think about how he talks to his friends in Romans 1, verses 11 through 12. Stay where you're at, by the way. He says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. His desire is to see them in the flesh, face to face. The best encouragement is costly, it's inefficient, and it happens face to face. In close, tight proximity, where we are deeply known, where we are understood, intuited almost. That's where the best stuff comes from. It's when the Holy Spirit comes and 
There is mutual ministry and mutual upbuilding. I mean, friends, listen, we're still learning. We are still learning how bad the pandemic isolation really was for a lot of people. Studies are still coming out. Punchline is worse than we thought, right? We kind of knew, even back during the pandemic, we knew it was going to be hard on us. We knew that some people were going to suffer more than others. We knew it was going to be difficult. It was actually worse than we thought it was going to be. COVID crushed so many people, and Zoom can only lift so much weight. After 30 weeks of preaching into a tiny camera from my house, I I did the best I could. I mean, I sold out as if every sermon was my last sermon. And even then, I knew that by the time it makes it through a screen to whoever's watching, it loses a lot of its value because we've lost proximity. I knew that. It's, It's like when you put a bunch of food in a kitchen strainer and you kind of strain all the liquid out. I knew that things were moving through the camera, but all the good stuff the stuff that is imparted with, with physical proximity in the equation, all that's gone. All that's gone. I knew that. I mean, do you remember how excited we were to all come back to something like this? Out of our caves, right? Or, or, or even, forget that, even before we were able to come back into something like this, just after, after bending the curve or whatever we did for a few weeks, being able to be in backyards with people with bandanas on and, and, and handmade Purell or whatever we could find off the black market. Everyone was afraid to cough. We're all bumping shoulders or elbows or whatever that was all about. How hard that was, but we were just excited to do it. We weren't really complaining. It was kind of odd and strange, but we were just happy to see each other, even if it was across a yard, even if it was across a driveway. Even returning to this gathering was clunky. This was clunky and very controversial. Not everybody came back. Not everybody was excited about this happening, okay? And still, as clunky as it was, as clumsy as we were, we were all so starved of physical proximity that we were happy to do it. I lost count of how many times I heard somebody say, man, this is good. This is just so good just to be back together again. I mean, every other row is taped off. We have thermometers, a collection of thermometers that I spent way too much money on. I don't even think we had a kid's community because we didn't have any volunteers left. I mean, it was just weird. And we were happy to do it. Happy to do it. And listen, I'm an introvert. So at first I thought a quarantine sounds nice to me. Are you sure we don't need more weeks to bend the curve? Two weeks sounds kind of fast, right? I was quarantining before it was cool because I have a high tolerance for being left alone, and yet even then I was starved for face-to-face contact, tight proximity. And God, in Genesis 2, says it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good. It's not good. We see John say something really interesting, and I love the way he says it. 3 John 13, stay where you're at. He says, I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Man, this this was such a key passage for me through the backside of being quarantined and not being able to do something like this. I had so much I wanted to say. So sick of the video camera. Thankful that we have the technology. Sick of using it. So much to say, I just want to meet with you though. I just want to see you face to face. Good, costly, inefficient encouragement traffics face to face. 
Many of you in this room are a lot like me, a lot like me, naturally introverted, okay? Face-to-face, it's much harder. Drains the batteries a lot faster, right? But just because it's natural for you and me to do that doesn't mean it's healthy for us to live like that. It's one thing for us to be aware of our constraints and our personality. It's a whole other thing to hide behind it, right? Although I feel encouraged and free to make space for solitude infrequently as a part of my growth, I do not feel called to isolation as a way of life. But let's get back into the passage a little bit so I don't veer too far. Let's look at verse 7. This is when it gets uh, a little bit weirder. On the first day of the week, so they're in Troas, on the first day of the week when we were to gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, young man, most believe he was a teenager, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and then so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted or encouraged. So we've got this kid named Eutychus who I'm sure whenever Paul started talking, he was really interested. I guarantee he was probably hanging on every word for like the first 28 minutes. And then things, he probably even took notes, right? Had his his moleskin open, taking notes, really interested in what Paul has to say. And then after a while, like apparently three hours long or something, I mean, there's not enough bathroom breaks that can... Come on, I mean, that's a long time. Three, four, five hours, that's midnight. And all of a sudden, all he hears is Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. His eyes are getting heavy. He's doing the best he can, doesn't want to offend Paul. Falls asleep out of a window, falls three stories, and dies, right? Pretty gruesome. We're all smiling right now. It's pretty gruesome. It's only funny now because he, he didn't really die, right? But you know the best part about this story? It's not the fact that he came back alive, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. My favorite part of this story is his name in the Greek means lucky. (laughs) True story. His name means lucky, right? No way he's shaking that nickname after this happened. I guarantee someone put a name plaque above that seat saying lucky seat. No one else sit here or something like that, right? Lucky. Friends, listen, we've had bats in here. I'm not even promising one doesn't come out today just to make an appearance, just so you don't feel ripped off. We've had bats in here, light issues, HVAC issues. We've had catalytic converters stolen in the parking lot before, right? You will be pleased to know no one has ever died in here, right? If you nod off, it's a short fall. It's just right there. (laughs) Some of you have nodded off and dropped your expensive Yeti cup, and we hear it and we judge you for it, right? But that's, that is about as bad as it gets. And interestingly, you know, I was talking to Randy about this a little bit earlier. Some pastors will use this passage right here as reasoning behind long sermons, right? It's good that we preach a long time because Paul did it, right? They're skipping the part where it killed somebody. But they're saying it's okay to do that. It takes 60 minutes to read the book of Romans, which was a sermon, 45 minutes to read the book of Hebrews, which was a sermon. Puritans were known for about two to three hour sermons. There are clinics now that will teach pastors to get it done in under 20 minutes. Why? Our attention span is shrinking, right? 
The National Center for Biotech Information says that the, the attention span, and I'm not sure how they measure it, but in the year 2000, it was measured at 12 seconds. That was the average attention span. Now it's under six. For context, a goldfish is, is nine, right? So we have an attention span that is not as impressive as a disposable fish. I've already preached too long for some people. But the fact is, is we have a short attention span. I mean, think about how the average person, when they go online, they bounce from a website in under 15 seconds, and they just scan the top 20% of the material and what's called above-the-fold material. So the stuff that is above, before you start scrolling, that's all considered above-the-fold. But for, if you go to our website, that's why it's built the way it is. Punchy pictures, short phrases. That's by design, right? That's just being on mission to a very sleep-deprived populace with an attention span shorter than a goldfish. I mean, I'll just say I think Lucky did pretty well here, right, given the climate that we have right now. This is a totally different sermon I can't tiptoe into right now, but I will say our ability to meditate on something can be groomed. To, we, we, can, we can groom our attention span. It, it can be done. And it, it can actually be a sense of worship to the Lord to lift our attention span. It's just been hard because of how technology has truncated it more and more every single year. Listen, this is such a weird passage, right? But the main idea of a passage like this is that Paul encourages the church and Eutychus is raised from the dead. But why do you care? Even if all of that's true, who cares? Why does it matter for you and me? Well, we need encouragement. And it, it might not be exactly what you think it is. Encouragement. It might be something a little different. You see, this world without Jesus encourages primarily by describing how big you are, competent you are, how much potential you have. And we'll take it because we're so starved. I mean, discouragement is so debilitating. We'll borrow a broken quote from some social media account, someone we don't even know, and we'll cling to it for dear life, even though it has nothing to do with the Lord because we're so starved for encouragement. And because this is what we subsist on as a church, it's what we dole out as well. We try to put courage in somebody else, and we just greeting card them to death. We try to place courage and animate and invigorate others by using empty cliches. Someone's melting in some crisis, and the best we can come up with is some inspirational word salad that kind of made sense in our head, but now that we say it out loud, it doesn't, right? Hey, just keep on keeping on, man. Just keep on keeping on. It's the best we can do. I think we can do better than that. I know we can do better than that. If we want to ignite the downcast and put spirit and courage in the broken, then the best encouragement is not just costly. It's not just inefficient. It's not just face-to-face. -face. It's gospel-formed. What do I mean when I say that, gospel-formed? The best encouragement will not end with others being big, but with others being loved. Your best encouragement is not where you are central. It's not where you are big. It's not where you have competency and so much. But it's where you are loved. It's where you are adored. It's being reminded of how God sees you. For us to look at each other and, and say, man, this gift that God has given you, it ministers to me. I see God clearly because of what he's done in your life. You mean so much to me. And what you do is so precious to me. You've meant so much to me. And I see Jesus clearly. 
because of this gift that he's given you. That's encouragement. That, that would be an example of a gospel-formed encouragement. Or, hey, I know this season is tough. I, I'm not even quite sure how it's going to end for you. I mean, I could, I could tell you something that sounds flowery, but who really knows? But I could tell you one thing. God is God or he's not God at all. I mean, he's not just good at making promises. Can we both agree? He's never broken one. He's really good at keeping promises. And do you know that he is watching you right now and he adores you right now and he cares for you right now? You've got his attention right now. You're not forgotten. You've not been abandoned. That's what a gospel-formed encouragement can sound like. Listen, I've had one of those weeks, the last week, with very high highs and very low lows. It was a dramatic week. I'm not even mad at it. It just is what it is. But I will say throughout the week, there have been times where I've left the company of even some of you and have been so richly encouraged to where I get in my vehicle or I get alone in my office and I just weep. Not, not, because, not because you told me something great about me, but because you showed me Jesus. You reminded me for a moment because I didn't forget, but I forgot. You reminded me of how important the gospel is, how God came to us, lived, died, and lived again for my benefit at his cost, as a grace to me, as a mercy to me. He brought me into a family I, I, I didn't belong in. He gave me something I didn't deserve. He didn't give me what I did deserve. And you reminded me for a moment. And I feel so enriched and lifted, and I'm so thankful. I mean, I, I, I could go name by name for some of you and just start picking you out, even this last week, and just say, you said this, and I was encouraged. You said this to that person. You didn't even say it to me. I just watched you say it to someone else, and it lifted me. It put courage in my soul. Of course, the problem is that you can't name everybody, right? Encouragement is most helpful when reminded, not that you and I are big, but that we're loved. Gospel-formed encouragement brings courage because God is good. Let me take this passage, for instance, Philippians 4.13, if we could put that on the screen. Here's the difference. I can do all things, period. Let's just put a hard stop there, right? Full stop. I can do all things, full stop. That's the way the world encourages. That's the way the world will do it. You could do anything. Not really, though, right? I mean, not really, though, right? You could do anything if you just put your mind to it. You could do anything if you just don't quit. You can do it. The kingdom goes further. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's the difference between what the world offers and what Christ offers us. You see, this is where failure will occur. Failure finds you and me in encouragement when we're one of two things. We're either absent or we're self-absorbed. Okay? And sometimes those overlap, admittedly. They're, they're one and the same. We're either absent or we're self-absorbed. Here's the simple math of, of, of the matter. You can't encourage someone deeply if you don't know them deeply. You can't know them deeply unless you spend deep time with them, and you can't spend deep time with them if you're absent. That's just how it works. That's not a hard sell, right? Courage is not installed in a vacuum. Not only is it not done over a video, it's not done in a vacuum either. Simple presence, attendance, presence is a major, if not the major component of connection. People come in here all the time looking for connection. I want to feel connected. I want friends. I, what you're really saying is I want to be known. 
not just kind of known, but deeply known, not judged, but known, loved, uh, missed if I'm not there. I want to be connected. But that comes through time together. It comes through presence. You know, one of the things we talk about in our partnership class, and if you've been through our partnership class, you've heard me say this in one of those four weeks, that connection won't come in the 10 minutes before a service or the four minutes afterward while your kids are running circles around you and you just pray and wish that Chick-fil-A would pivot in their business model and open on Sunday, right? (laughs) It's impossible to build deep, meaningful connection in those moments. Why? Because it's not protected, is it? It's infrequent, it's distracted, it's not protected. And you know that. So when someone asks you, how are you doing, you're left with no options, right? Except for good. And then, of course, you have to reciprocate. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing good. We call that looping. We loop. We loop. We said it last week. We'll say it next week. We'll say it the week after that. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? Great. Great. But nothing deep and meaningful is built. The only time you can maybe not do that is if you're already in deep community with somebody. Then you can make, you can make some use of a 10-minute here, five-minute there, when you're already walking tightly. I mean, I do life with JP. I do life with Brian Erickson. If I bumped into Brian Erickson after the service and he were to come up to me and say, hey, how are you doing? I, I, could, I could be honest with him because I'm not trying to build something from scratch. I've got time with him. I've spent time with him. Absence cannot encourage, and looping won't displace discouragement. There's, a, there's room for us to repent, even before a passage like this, for forsaking community, for abandoning it. Gatherings, whether it's a big one like this or a small one like a DNA, just being done with it, forsaking exhortation and encouragement. Why do we do that? Because it's not valuable to us. And if that's the case for you, how has it been trying to shake your discouragement? Not easy, has it? I mean, you're still discouraged. You're still discouraged. And even if we are not absent, even if we are present, another failure can occur when we are self-absorbed, which is just being hyper-fascinated with ourselves. And that's not only a sin, that's very corrosive to community. You see, when we're self-absorbed, we can't see others through the weeds of our own insecurities, right? Can't afford to spend any energy lifting other people up and putting courage in anyone else when I need them to adore me. Can't do it. And that means I have to talk incessantly about myself. I have to lure people into compliments. I have to overwhelm conversations. I have to advertise my life without end. That will discourage people, not encourage them. You can see how that's corrosive to community, this level of insecurity. You see, when we're self-absorbed, it's because we believe our core value is connected to how other people see us. That's, being, that's, that's what yields self-fascination. I need to know that you love me, that you like me, that you're fascinated with me. And the reason I do that is because I've lost my sight line with the gospel, which clearly says I'm loved and approved and thought for and valuable. I'm accepted. And if that's true, I'm free to be rejected by you. If God really loves me, and I really believe it, if God really loves me and, and likes me, right, which there's a difference, if he likes me and approves of me, then I'm free to spend my energy on you because I don't need you to do anything for me. I'm full. I'm satisfied. I'm content. 
When we're self-fascinated, we forget that. We forget it. And we need others to compliment us so we can survive. See, there's room to repent there as well, right? Extracting our approval from the world. Why? Because it was already given to us through Christ. We're trying to add something that the world might or might not give us to something God has already freely gifted us through Jesus. And therefore, it's a sin because we're saying God's approval of us is not valuable. I need you to supplement what God has done. I need you to finish off what his work lacked in, and that means I need you to adore me. That requires repentance. But when we have sight of the gospel, we're free to spend encouragement on others, add a deficit to ourselves, and this is where it becomes gospel-formed and Christ-shaped. When we're lifting others, putting courage in others, even though we are lowering ourselves by doing so. Jesus, our great encourager, he installed courage in us. He puts courage in us as he comes face to face with us. He doesn't just mail a letter. He comes face to face. He comes himself. At his great cost for our great benefit, God was not cheap with his encouragement, nor was it very efficient. He came himself, and he gave himself. He came to tell us sweet things we really didn't even deserve to hear. And what I love about the backside of this passage is that Eutychus, in some ways, he pictures God's deepest encouragement to us. We were a teenager, possibly, who dies, and then God just lifts him from the dead. But one day, friend, you will be raised from the dead, never to die again. I mean, let, if you're a Christian today, let that put some courage in you. Let that place some valuable courage in you, that there will be one day where you will close your eyes here and you will open up your eyes in forever. And you will never be discouraged again. You will never experience discouragement again. It will run out of mileage. That question, do I have what it takes, will never be asked again. That's fascinating to me. No more sting, no more dismay, no more tears, no more feeding on the approval of others, no more demanding. It's awesome. Until then, we walk in the light of a passage like this as a people who are free to spend our energy on encouraging others. That's what we get to do. Ask yourself, as a church, who is obviously discouraged in your life? Who needs animation? Who needs courage? Who is it? Where are they wobbly in their faith? Where are they just unable to overcome a sin? Where are they just sad, beaten down, limping? Where do they believe they don't have what it takes? Our application for this is to just spend yourself, exhaust your energy for their benefit. Avoid greeting card garbage, and just point them to Jesus. I said this a couple weeks ago, a good leading question is just to say, who is Jesus to you in this moment? Listen, I know you just lost your job. I know you're scared. Who is Jesus to you right now? And I know, I know you're sick, and you keep going to different doctors, and you can't kick it, and you're scared. Who is Jesus to you now? It's the best thing a good friend can do is bring good quality encouragement. Maximize those face-to-face -face moments too, even if you're an introvert like me. Don't just listen to the words they say. What's behind the words they're saying? Can you see it in their eyes? Can you tell what's going on? Ask questions. And then rather than tell someone how awesome they are, tell them how awesome God is. Tell them how you see God in them. Remind them of their gifts and how they've ministered to you. 
Turn that into a time of worship. Placing courage in each other in a way different than the world means being present in the body and soul. It means being so satisfied in Jesus that you are free to spend yourself on lifting others up. Some of you, this is really hard sales pitch because you walked in just needing to be encouraged. And you're probably even asking yourself now, what about me? I'm discouraged. I'm discouraged, Luke. Who knows you? I mean, really knows you. Who knows that you're discouraged? Are you keeping that a secret? Are you trying to look a certain way? Maybe protect yourself, right? Walk up to somebody and say, hey, listen, I'm discouraged, and this is why. I clearly do not have it all together. I clearly have a lot of growing to do. I don't see Christ clearly right now. I don't think I have what it takes. Can you help me? Can you help me see Jesus? That's something that you'll have to do, right? This is this mutual encouragement, us back and forth, placing courage in each other. And if you have good relationships, it's happening both ways all the time. This is what the world looks at and sees Christ clearly. The world sees that, and it becomes a missional demonstration of how good and kind God is. This is why John says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's fascinating to me. This is my admonition to you today, church, is to find somebody today, just today. Don't put it off. Don't stick it on your calendar for Tuesday. Today, put courage in somebody. Put courage in somebody. Show them Jesus. Find somebody who's hurting, somebody that you suspect is not doing well, and encourage them. Practice this. And then maybe as the week goes on, find somebody that encouragement would be a little bit more costly and very inefficient, meaning go out of your way. Go out of your way at your cost for their benefit. Be inefficient. Make it costly. Make it face-to-face. Make it gospel-formed. Amen.